0: Welcome to our Conversations with Sound Artists podcast. This is a collaboration of the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. My name is Glenn Kaiser, I'm the director of the Dolby Institute, and we have something special for you today. This is the last in our special series of conversations about directors and their collaborations with their sound teams. And this is a recording of a uh, conversation that we had at the Tribeca Film Festival a while back with the composer Carter Burwell and the sound designer Skip Livesay about their pretty remarkable collaboration with Cohen Brothers. Uh, they both started their careers really working with the Cohen Brothers on their very first film, Blood Simple, in 1985. And it continued working with the Coens all the way through uh, their last film. So this is a, a recording of a conversation that we had in front of a live audience in New York City as part of the Tribeca Film Festival uh, Masterclass series. So uh, enjoy it. So, the story of how you guys started in the industry almost parallels how you started with the Cohen Brothers, right? This was the, the Blood Simple was your first movie, is that right, Carter? Yes, all, all at all the same life. time. Yep. <laughs> how, so, how did you guys get involved with the Cohens uh, in the first place? Uh, my
1: friend Mark Silverman was the line producer, and uh, I was working in um, in the Brill in the Brill Building in the Film Center Building, and. Uh, He, we worked on some projects together and he said, well I worked on this movie in Texas and they need a sound editor, would you be interested? And I said, of course, fantastic. And um, I I agreed to do it for the money that they had. I think that's why I got the job. (laughs) Uh, It was their first film and they didn't know any better so they hired me right away. And after a while when it came time, after a year really, uh, we started working on um, getting ready to mix and they said, Who are we going to get to do the score? And I said, Well, I know this guy, Carter. He's really fantastic. Uh, I don't know if he's ever done a movie score, but um, he's a great guy. I think you should meet him.
2: Because you guys knew each other from just from the music from scene. The music,
1: right?
2: yeah. Right, yeah. From the, you know, the New York, as always, had had a music scene in the 80s, which we were, you know, apart, late 70s, early 80s. Um, yeah, and Skip and I knew each other from bands playing in places like CBGBs. You know, Mud Club, um, and um, yeah, my, my my conversation was very much like Skip's. They, they didn't know any better, so they uh, <laughs> ended up um, hiring me. Although I think they did. You know, we were talking about it backstage. They did actually hire someone else first, and um, well,
1: hang on. They you got the job, and then you said, "Well, I, I can't really do it right now," and then they hired another composer. Oh, okay. Because you were going away.
2: Right, so I, to, I went to Manchester, in England to work on an album, and, um, and then at the end of that, towards the end of that, they called and they said they asked if I could still you know, come back. And, do
1: you know what happened? No. Well, the other composer went into the stage to do the final output. He had done it all on computer, and he had erased the cues.
2: <laughs> Joel said something like that to me, but I didn't know if there was a story. That's really so true. So
1: they, they, they Carter, we got to get Carter. <laughs> so I don't know if that panic was in their voice when they called you the second time, but
2: that's... <laughs> This is a good tip to you composers out there. Don't erase Don't all erase. the music uh, you know, at, the la- at the mix. Uh, yeah. So was it a situation where um, you didn't know what you didn't
0: know, and so it, it just kind of worked? Or how did you, you know, for your first film, what, what was your approach to, to doing the score? Well,
2: I mean, you have to remember that it was also their first film. So when I met them, you know, they just, they were kids out of college, just as I was, who didn't know what they were doing. Um, and... Uh, I mean, of course, now in retrospect, we all knew what oh, we the were doing, genius was there. <laughs> we, uh, we there was an inevitability we, to it. We right, could but, tell the genius was there. No, but we really, I mean, I, when I looked at a, you know, a reel, they showed me a reel of a rough cut of a, this film, you know. And, very and long a, film. Very long film during which a lot doesn't happen, you know, for <laughs> long stretches. Yeah, I mean, I had no way of telling that this was anyone would ever see it. And in fact, they were quite honest with me saying the odds that anyone will ever see this are low. And they were, and since all my money was deferred payments, in case it got distributed, as I say, they were very honest, they are to this day, very honest about you know um, the money they have and with the possibilities of things you know uh, being profitable. They're low. And in that film, they said it was virtually impossible. And I remember, I, even after they completed it, I think they got distribution in South Africa and nowhere else for a year <laughs> until like uh, Toronto picked it up and then New York Film Festival picked it up. And then people started thinking that instead of like a sort of roughly made um, long film. It was actually a tense, taut, you know, film noir. Um, so. Right.
0: So what's the process for both of you uh, for working with Joel and Ethan? Um, wh- 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 at what point in the process do you guys typically get involved?
1: Well, we're doing one now. Uh, they're making a film now, and we're going to go in and spot with them in a couple of uh, days, and we're going to go through the whole film and talk about all the things uh, sound-wise that are going to happen in the film. Things, some things are very obvious. A lot of things are, we have to completely make up, uh, including pretty much all of what cars. Doing, you haven't done any preliminary work for the film.
0: No. Do you guys read the scripts mm-hmm. before they go shoot, or?
2: Yeah, we do, but that's a uh, <laughs> that's a courtesy. You don't you don't give them script notes. No. is What I'm,
0: what I'm saying, that's, right? Yeah, that's for fun, and it
2: does. You know, sometimes I know for my part, um, it does help to. Um, have read the script and at least discuss, are we talking about a big orchestra, four instruments? You know, it helps them with the budget and things like that to, um, to have those kinds of discussions. But it's usually obvious. I mean, this film, it's obvious that it's big. Um, and um, It's a musical comedy. Yeah, it's, it's a musical good. comedy. It takes place on a Hollywood back lot, so you actually go, you pass through all these films that are in production, and there's a, uh, uh, a tap dance number, and there's an Esther Williams water ballet number, and there's, you know... Uh, you,
0: there's a submarine... You,
2: yeah, there's <laughs> a cowboy. You
0: know, are you guys supposed to be saying all this
2: stuff? Oh, it's uh, public knowledge, right? I think it, <laughs> and it is now. <laughs> the, uh, anyway, so that we yeah we we typically spot when there's a cut of the film, right? And um, spotting is where we we go through the film from beginning to end, and talk about what should be happening sonically, musically in the scenes, and um, it is not typically done. The composer and sound designer spot the film together, but it's a smart thing that I would recommend everyone do because if you don't, as I say, which is much more normal, at the final mix, you've got someone trying to push in the sound effects, someone else trying to push in the music. It's, um, if it hasn't been planned, it's, you know, it's just a situation for fist fight.
1: Yeah, it's more like a free for all, you know, under most circumstances, most movies that we work on, where we don't know the composer. I have, I've had the pleasure of working with a bunch of composers, not nearly for as long as, as closely as we've worked together. But uh, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of the music part of the business. And now I've been mixing for the last uh, long time. <laughs> I don't know, 10 or 15 years. So now I get to, I mix the music as well. So I have to pay attention to what's happening on that side. It's not just the talking and those music guys over
0: there, which is the way it, it is like that very commonly. You can't, you can you can't be precious with the sound effects because you're also responsible for the music on the, we, on the mixing board.
1: Even well. more right. so, I don't mix the sound effects anymore. Right. I mix
0: the dialogue and the music. So, so. you you cut the you you supervise the sound effects and you do sound design and then you hand that off to another mixer. On the on the stage, it's an interesting. So I can't I can't emphasize to you guys enough how, how rare in, in our business this way of working is, uh, because I've been on so many mixing stages where you know it's just a you know, it's a it's a, a train wreck between. Sorry.
1: <laughs> and it's That's often a, unhappy too. Yeah. You know, it's a quite a precious process. It takes a lot of time and money to produce all the material, and people generally work in a vacuum. Basically, uh, it's not uncommon for. The film score to be composed and recorded and mixed without listening to any of the other stuff that's going
2: that 's absolutely right yeah. and um, I mean when sound went digital, um, everyone's very excited that you could in a way you could just have all the faders up you know it was technically possible to, to do that, and um, I still hear a lot of very noisy mixes where they you know basically someone has decided, has decided not to decide what should be. Uh, featured. But um, but if instead you can, before it's even done, decide, okay, this is a this is a music moment, this is a sound moment, or Skip and I will do things where I'll give him the high frequencies and I take the low frequencies or things like that. Or we we pitch our work together in, on No Country for Old Men. We'll discuss that I guess. But you know, yeah. finding this so that his wind sounds match the pitch of the music and vice versa. So it's um, I mean, I think it's very exciting, and uh, you know, but it is not commonly done.
0: Right. So you guys actually spot the film together with with Joel and Ethan, and then you're handing stuff back and forth to each other as you go through the process.
2: Where we, yeah, we we think it's relevant. Yeah.
0: Well, one of the things that uh, one of the reasons I picked that raising Arizona clip just also just uh, to me is kind of genius filmmaking. But um, I'm curious about uh, you know it's it's not unusual uh, in your work with the Coens to have. Um, not necessarily a very long musical cue but you'll have a piece of music that will come and go so you know it'll it'll come in for a moment and then step back and then you might have this cacophony with a you know that I love that tone for the dogs you know that that rumble of you know whenever Same. the dogs <laughs> appear so that and to me that you guys were doing this from the very beginning which is is deciding who was going to step forward and who was going to step back how did that that organic kind of collaboration start
1: I would say that we have a motivational speaker that we work with, uh, Joel and Ethan Cullen. <laughs> <laughs> so like the like the, the the thundering horde is what they call it, the dog sound. So like they wanted the sound of a stampeding herd of elephants. And
2: so they they will they know that. In fact, maybe right. even be in the script. Right. They, right. as you said, I mean they they write knowing the importance of the sound and the music. And there's they put space in their films for that and a lot of people don't but they actually they they feel free to have a few minutes when there might be not be any dialogue like what you just saw right. that you know the sound is all um, effects of music there occasional word uh, you know here and there but uh, a lot of people would be uncomfortable having pages of dialogue script with no dialogue but um but they they understand you know what what will be there in the end or at least they they have some that's that that's leave.
0: especially rare for writer directors to yeah. have you know, significant well, chunks of the movie with no dialogue. No, just no dialogue <laughs> for a Chucky, you know. It's, it skips and all, he, he teases me constantly about this sort of stuff. But, uh, well, um, it
1: is worth pointing out that in Raising Arizona, the, um, everything with a car was shot MOS. So if, if you watch the film, there are whole grand long sequences like that one where there was no sound
0: recorded. Because it was shot very speed or why was there, what was it MOS? It's cheaper,
1: faster, I don't know.
0: We're not going to bother with sound during production just because we, we, need, we need to go fast.
2: The, the guy who was a mixer was a golfer, so he played golf on the days when they had cars. Well, and, and I was I was actually on the set when they were shooting that in Scottsdale. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, they, um, they de- you know, they, first of all, I'd like to say, you have to take your hat off to anyone who, for their second film, wants to work with babies and dogs. But they, <laughs> right? um, on the set, they, you know, every dog in the neighborhood is barking, right? They can't have three dogs in the street without every dog in the neighborhood barking. So it was, it was the middle of the night, but it was not quiet. It was, uh, you know.
0: <laughs> so everything is constructed in that. So was
2: basically what you're like. yeah, yeah.
1: We went to the first screening, I don't know if we were there, but they were, in those days, a screening was basically reserved for the filmmakers. There was no marketing screenings in those days. And so they would run whatever they had, which in this case was the dialogue track. And there may have been one music track and um, nothing else. So we, we sat in a screening and we watched these sequences. Uh, every, every time the car came on screen, quiet silence. <laughs> totally silent, all, all these chasings, things happening, motorcycles, all this stuff, completely silent. <laughs> and eventually Joel would go. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, our next clip is from Miller's Crossing. Uh, which is w- one of my favorites, um, and it's it's the uh, it's the scene when uh, Tommy, who's played by uh, Gabriel Byrne, uh, takes uh, John Torturo out to the uh, out to, to the woods at Miller's Crossing uh, to 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 bump him off. So uh, let's 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 see what happens.
1: Look in your heart. I'm playing to you. Look in your heart. I'm playing to you. Look at you! On. I'm praying to you! Look at you! On. I'm to you! Look at you! Look at you!
0: You can Look at you!
2: shut up you're dead get me
0: i'll flatter carter for uh, for a moment by saying um it, it's it's happened to me numerous times that uh, you know i'll be i'll be sitting in a movie uh that might have main credits at the end and i midway through the movie i'll suspect i think i know who wrote the music for this um but that doesn't happen with with your tracks they uh uh they they seem to very perfectly sit with whatever, whatever the, the the needs of of the film are. I wanted to ask you about the instrumentation. Uh, obviously, this was radically different from what we had just seen from Raising Arizona, which was their very next film. Um, how do you, when when you're thinking about and working with a with a, a new film, how do you decide what the you know what the vocabulary of the of the instrumentation is going to be?
2: Well, it's um, ideally the the music and. By extension, the instrumentation is uh, somehow part of the world of the film. I, I, ideally, it would be true; that they are all, as you say, just completely a world unto themselves. That would be my ideal. It's, of course, not that way in reality, but um, but as much as possible, that's what I would like to do. In this case, you know, I had never done an orchestral score. I didn't. You know, I'm not a trained composer or a trained musician, so I don't know anything. <laughs> at the point at which they, Joel and Ethan, it was their idea that it would be orchestral. They thought with the the look of the film, the big coats and the hat, and the, the way the film—you know—echoes a uh, an, an older style of filmmaking. Um, they wanted an orchestral score. They wanted the lushness of that, and they knew perfectly well. I knew nothing about how to do that. Um, <laughs> and honestly, anybody else would have gone and hired someone who knew what they were doing. Uh, but, um, but of course, if they were going to do that. I would never have gotten Blood Simple either. You know, they're, um, they they. Uh, and my wife thinks that you know the reason that they keep hiring me is because they just hate meeting new people. And, uh, they, you know, <laughs> um, but um, it's also possible they just they. You there know, may be an element of truth to that, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, but yeah, so for some reason, yeah, they 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 knew I didn't know how to do it, and they and they gave me three months, which is in this business is a long time, yeah. to um, figure it out, like come up with themes. Um, sketch them out with synthesizers and uh, work, find an orchestrator who does know how to work with the orchestra, find engineers and how to record the orchestra. Like this in a way was our first Real, you know, film in the sense that we were we were stepping into a a, a tradition of of film music that um, that we had managed to avoid by just having a banjo player or on Blood Simple just me playing right. piano or things like that.
0: And stylistically, I mean, visually and in terms of sound effects, the, the, the two movies could not be more different from each other.
2: Right. Yeah. So we were, you know, we were all learning a lot all at the, all at the same time.
0: It's I, that's remarkable to me because because the work all seems so self-assured, uh, which is uh, just amazing. Can you talk a little bit about um, designing and, and building the, the palette of sounds for, for, uh, for the woods?
1: Yeah, that was one of the key sounds of the whole film was the sound of the creaking trees and that we had to have something. So um, a lot of times when you want to emphasize that it's really, really quiet, you start by turning off the air conditioning <laughs> and then you have something that's not very loud that you can clearly hear. And that makes you think, wow, I can hear the trees creaking. Jeez, it must be very quiet here. So then you could speak up when the air conditioning comes on, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I am I can I'm, 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 I'm no this
0: is a THX-rated uh, no
1: cinema. By the way. <laughs> THX air conditioning. <laughs> so um, the, um, a lot of it was about hitting these key sounds. And again, we have, I'm pretty sure that was in the script, or at least it was very clear in the script that they were in an isolated place where um, things would echo and even at the distance, however far the car was, they could clearly hear the gunshot and know that the deed was done. And that was a crucial part. And cinematically, you wanted to sort of have the reverberating sound of the forest um, as a reinforcement for that, for the fact that he puts in the two shots. So uh, we sort of spun that into thunderous echo, and that is kind of a natural version of a sound that you hear echoing around the space. So we added that kind of thunder, uh, rolling thunder, to the gunshots. Those were the kind of things that we needed to do uh, to make our 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 gigantic orchestra of sound effects work. We had the same basically the same call that Carter had, which was up your game and do something special and. We also had period cars, it was a lot of fun to do, we recorded out in Ohio and uh, on a very cold day. We had machine guns and all kinds of fun <laughs> stuff and it was really, um, there was a lot of stuff to dig into. But it was really just about doing the hard work that had has been done, you know, since the talkies of finding really cool sounds to put in the movie. And um, even though not many films had been made like this one in New York, we were still able to. Go places like Ohio and record cars and do the things that they'd been doing in Hollywood all the the whole time.
0: One of the things that uh, I mean, there, there again, so many scenes I could have picked for this. Um, I, I, you know, I, I love the the Tommy Gun, uh, you know, Danny Boy sequence uh, from Miller's Crossing. But I wanted to ask you, Carter, about one of the things that that uh, I think is is true of the Coen Brothers movies is that uh, they often have a very Interesting combination of uh, source music or you know indigenous music to the period with the score. So can you talk a little bit about? I'm thinking also like the Beethoven sonatas and, and Man Who Wasn't There, uh, or uh, uh, some of the other uh, you know the the the, the hymns uh, from uh, from True Grit. At what point does that become part of the palette, and how do you work with that material?
2: Well. Um- in each case, it's, honestly it's different in every, in every film. In this one, um, they showed me the film with no music at all, and um, and the film is especially seen in that way. It's quite brutal. It's people Gabriel Byrne's getting kicked in the head in every other scene. You know, it's it's very, Gabriel
0: Byrne just. I mean, he gets the shit kicked out of him. He still looks he great, I mean, right but now, uh, he's. he's
2: a, uh, um, you know, I wish I could look that good after I've been kicked in the head. But, <laughs> um, but it was quite brutal and cold, and I, I felt that. For me after having read the script I felt that well you know what's driving this story in a way really is the love between Gabriel Byrne's character and Albert Finney's character the, he's the head of the the gang that Byrne is in. that there's a, it's like a love story and then Gabriel Byrne's forced to betray the one he loves in order to save him and um I you know to me that was what it was about so I after having watched it with them um you know I said well what would you think about a warm kind of a score and um and they uh <laughs> um, and I and I said, well, so you're thinking more like cold, like sort of, you know, um, uh, more you know standoffish. And they said, and I think one of them said, well, how about neutral? <laughs> because you know they didn't really know exactly what they wanted. They hadn't thought about it, and they didn't want me coming in and totally changing their movie. you know, Which right. um, so. I went off and um, found this, I listened, listened to a lot of Irish themes. I thought the, the main characters you're watching are from the Irish gang, and um, found this thing called Limerick's Lamentation that I thought could be turned into an orchestral uh, element. You know, you could I could imagine how it could be augmented. And um, so I did a quick sort of version of that and um, just brought them in and played it for them. I don't remember which scene it was, but for one of these scenes, just played that idea for them. It was It was in fact going to be, a sentimental Irish tune, and Gabriel Byrne, who has a stony expression for the entire film, the music kind of suggests that somewhere back in there, there is actually a person with feelings and, you know, maybe a sappy Irishman who gets drunk and cries. Um, anyway, <laughs> they saw it immediately. We didn't really have to discuss it after that. I played it for them and they said, yeah, okay, yeah, that's right. So that was it. Um, but so that's how this one went. But it's, it varies. Like on Raising Arizona, that yodeling theme is something that Joel knew from a Pete Seeger uh, song. But when we looked at where Pete Seeger had gotten it, he'd gotten from a Sons of the Pioneers right. um, record. When we looked at the Sons of the Pioneers, they called it a folk tune. So we lost, the trail went dry then. But so a lot of these things, yes, they do in the end, they are actually folk tunes. Fargo, um, the same way. Um, and there's something about... Who
1: tie, which one of you guys tied the Messing Around Suite to Ode to Joy? Because that's genius, really. That's Pete, that's
2: Pete, I think. Pete did that. I'm pretty sure Pete okay. did that. Yeah, you could that's have great. said I did. Um, <laughs> anyway, it was, um, there's something about the folk tunes. There's an authenticity and um, an earthiness uh, to them that just happens to work really well with Joel and Ethan's Hmm. films and you know and you know by now by looking back on all their work that they are in fact very much into folk music but that's not yeah. why it's there uh, it, you know maybe some way there's connection but um, but there is something about it that's its humanity and it's um, just the fact that it survived for hundreds of years that makes a folk, folk tune special and uh, so I don't know it's but it but it, it's not like that's our plan uh, but it just right. has happened to work in a number of these cases.
0: One of the things that uh, I think is remarkably true about all the Coen Brothers films is that the casting decisions are fantastic and the performances are u- uniformly amazing. So can you talk a little bit about r- what your relationship is with a production sound recordist and the, and, and the steps that they take to, to get those performances and capture them on set uh, so that you don't have to do. I presume there's not a lot of ADR uh, in, in Joel and Ethan's movies. No. No, the, uh, Peter and I
1: worked on um, all of their movies. Carter has also worked on all of them. Actually, one of them only in spirit. But <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, Peter w- started as the... Are the three of you, the, that's the, all, the, the perfect attendance for the, the,
0: for the films. Actually,
1: is- Joel and Ethan didn't work on one of them, so we worked <laughs> on more than they have. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, Peter was the boom man for the first few movies. Uh, Alan... Um, Buyer was the location mixer for the first three, I think. And then Peter jumped into the mixer seat and uh, he's mixed the rest of them. And we we basically do, uh, I try to visit the set and I basically go and hang out with Peter and talk about things that we can do better. And um, we compare notes, we invite him to the mix. He doesn't always come because often he's working, but he comes to the mix and, uh, and we show him issues or things that we've done. And hopes of improving it collectively as we go and we basically um, the the big thing for the Cohen brothers is, is uh, it's the Hippocratic oath of above all do no harm so oftentimes uh, the material is so well recorded and so interesting and the way they work all you're really trying to do is keep it up there in the front and not mess it up with a lot of other stuff and we have this mantra that we have of getting a good recording for every single line in the script before they finish shooting. Mm. And they're pretty good about it. Um, They've gradually grown more and more focused on that. So whenever something is happening, like for instance, in uh, No Country for Old Men, we actually had uh, good recordings for every single line in the movie Um, with two exceptions. Uh, One was a line where Tommy Lee Jones was loading a horse into a trailer and the horse footsteps coincided with one of the lines. And they said, that's okay, we like that. So we singled that out and we sent it to them and said, okay, are you good with this? Otherwise, go do it again. And they said, no, it's okay, we like the horse footsteps. So the other one was um, Javier had a, a pronunciation issue which some people had flagged and we actually did ADR uh, for that line and put that in the movie. But otherwise, we're, there's like a really, really big effort to get really good sounding recordings for every line of dialogue.
0: I want to talk about No Country just for a moment. We're, we're running uh, uh, short on time, but I, I do want to touch on it. It's. Uh, I thought that there was actually no music in it until the end title sequence. Famously, that was the story that had come down, was it was a completely musicless film. But that, that turns out not to be the
2: case. Um, I think about 15 minutes maybe of, uh, of s- score in the film. But that's right, you, you, you're not intended to perceive it. Uh,
0: so what, what is the nature of that music? And, and, and why was it important
2: for it to be sort of
0: in a stealth mode in that particular film?
2: Well, we um, we actually came to that solution empirically. I think that Ethan always was dubious that there would be uh, you know an instrumental score that worked. Joel wasn't sure, and he he asked me to try some things. So um, I did try uh, you know some different approaches. But it is true. But what happened, just as I say, empirically, as soon as you heard something that sounded like music coming in it actually lessened the tension uh, and, um, in the film. And the film is all tension. Um, and obviously there are traditions of how music can increase tension, but the film in, in its silent mode was basically the tension meter was at the max. Was, and, and when music came in, all it did was it told you, it reminded you, oh, this is a film. And you would relax a little bit. We just all noticed it uh, that 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 happened. So I, you know, eliminated different possibilities. What what is causing this to happen? Like I tried, like just harmonics on violin, things like this. Maybe would that work? But honestly, the moment you noticed it was music, you thought, oh, it's a film, and it somehow, it just made you not as discomfort, un- uncomfortable. You know, it, re- it relaxed you in some way. So. Uh, what the solution that I came up with in the end was to have what are called completely steady-state sounds. They don't have a beginning and they don't have an end. Um, things like sine waves, and um, these things called Tibetan singing bowls, these bowls that you do this with. Um, and uh, I would just fade them in, typically under wind or car sound. And um, and we would pitch the wind and the car sounds and the music together, so you were you were not aware that something was there. The only reason we did it at all, really, was that Joel Nathan would flag certain scenes. Where we need a little something there. We need a little little tension. You know, it could, it could, we could boost it a little bit, um, and, or it needed to move. It was like the, there was something dramatically would happen, and we we need a sense that the the story has moved, but we don't have anything else that's going to tell us that. So we, the music would would do it. But um, but by intention you never hear it enter. It's been designed so. There are sometimes when you hear it go away, like the gas station scene where Javier uh, flips a coin. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment he reveals the coin, the music stops, and you only at that moment might you be aware that right. there was music going on. Um, but it's it's designed in that way. Interesting. So
0: we're going to show. This is a, 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 another one of my favorites. Uh, this is burn after reading. Um, uh, again, another case of people who are not quite as smart as they think they are, and, and it all goes horribly wrong. So let's, uh, let's take a look at the scene. For those of you who haven't seen the film, the, actually the next scene after this, between it, the two of them, is a pure Priceless. genius. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic scene. Uh, one of the things, uh, Skip, that I've always admired about your work is is um, it's not sound designed by the pound. It's, uh, it, it's very specific, it's very deliberate. The choices that you make and the sounds that you put in are all incredibly specific and just sit perfectly and feel perfect i there's so much to talk about in that sequence, but I, I I included that that last bits of walking down the various hallways in the CIA building because it just to me that's music that's also that that's score, but it's just again it's a perfect use of sound effects to tell story. Can you talk a little bit about how that sequence came together and 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 how you did that Well, like we talked about, many of the
1: those things were scripted, and um, the hallway sound uh, You know, actually, I'm not absolutely positive this is true, but um, I have a favorite film uh, which I've been trying to get them to remake for a long time. And this movie may have been inspired by that idea, or I'm not sure. They, They wouldn't admit it, of course, anyway. But there's a lot of sort of 60s espionage stuff. And in those days, sound was more simple because the process was more cumbersome. So things tended to be kind of one thing played bold, writ large, as they say. And uh, I really like that approach where you kind of choose one really good thing and present it and make it be as good as it can be. And we approach our work with the Coens that way. From the very beginning, uh, we have been, we've been down the wrong path quite a few times, but uh, generally that idea really holds strong. Uh, What Carter was saying about No Country for Old Men is a perfect example. Basically, that movie was an attempt to make a very, very scary movie with as few sounds as possible and still have it be a very interesting sounding movie. So um, with that in mind, Joel and Ethan are kind of like Mad Magazine when it comes to movie sound. They know all the key things. And whenever you can sneak in a reference to 2001 or, in this case, The President's Analyst, there will be, uh, much space will be given and much thought will be given to those ideas. And uh, that's one of the things that makes working with Joel and Ethan and Carter such a pleasure.
0: Great. One thing I wanted to ask you Carter about that sequence is, it's. I mean, this. It's a ridiculous movie. It's. It's. It's hilariously funny. Completely over the top. Everybody is just behaving in a ridiculous manner. But it's a pretty earnest score. I mean, it's. It's. It's dramatic and 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 is really taking its job very very seriously. Could you talk a little bit about about playing against
2: expectations uh, with music? And, and, and yeah. striking tonal difference. Well, in this case, it's um, you know, as you say, it's ridiculous, and almost all of the characters are idiots, uh, but they all believe themselves to be part of an international espionage drama, right? So um, basically, the vocabulary of the music is, from their point of view, it is from the opening sequence. You know, it's very earnest, very serious, bombastic, um, and in here. Even when ridiculous things are going on, like going up and down the stairs, you know, the bongos and things like that are part of the the vocabulary of the '60s espionage, you know, um, films. And uh, so it, you know, it's a bit more um, a bit more screwball here than in other parts of the film. But the music, yeah, it takes um, takes itself very seriously, and it's a, in a way, it's a uh, tradition we might have begun around in Fargo because there the question was, yeah. The, And we actually did ask the question out loud. Um, This film presents itself as a true crime drama, um, but we want people to be able to laugh. But we also want them to believe the murders are real. But we want that not to, we don't want to dampen the possibility of them laughing. So how do you solve that problem musically? Everything is a joke to them. Anyway, there the solution was yeah. You know, well, the music will take everything—not only take everything seriously, but take it too seriously. And the very fact that it takes it overly seriously then becomes a joke. Right. Um, so um, that you know that worked here as well. That's great. Well, we've got time. We're going to take some
0: questions now from the audience, and uh, you're right there in the front row, they're going to give you a microphone. Um, thank you so much. I actually just took a class in January at NYU on the Cohen Brothers, so I feel very educated even more so now. Um, my question is how has working with the Cohen Brothers affected your other work outside of them? Um, and especially for you Carter, how does that affect your building of theme songs?
2: Well, you know, I In terms of the way that I work, I'm not sure how much it's um, it's affected me because, as I say, I try to take each film on its own terms. Uh, every director actually works differently. I've, I've not, you know, it's just simply true. Every director that I work with works differently. And um, so I don't try to, to expect, I don't expect them to work the way Joel and Ethan do. And sometimes the way that directors will work may drive me nuts. You know, they, um, they can't make decisions or they make them in a different order than I would or, um, you know, they're... You know, all you know. It's all every film is different, and every director is different. Um, so I try not to bring any expectations. You know, Joe and Ethan were the first people that I worked with, and when after Blood Simple and Raising Arizona, when I started to work with other people, work in Hollywood, um, it was mostly <laughs> disappointing to find out how things really, really work, um, because. Uh, Well, for one thing, Joel and Ethan say are very honest, and they they give you they're completely frank uh, with what's going on. They they never play any kind of games, and um, they're very um, rigorous. And they're very rigorous. They're there if you go to a set; they're there before anybody else. You go at the at the recordings; they're there well before we begin. A lot of directors will show up later. They figure, okay, the composer's doing all this stuff; I don't have to be there. They're there from before it starts, and they're there after it ends. And same with the mix, I assume. Um, It's a, they're very, um, it's strange to say, but workmanlike, you know, and they, they show up at their office pretty much every day, whether they're working on a film or not, they'll write. They have this, you know, it's their, their work is their life and vice versa. And um, um, it's not as common in Los Angeles, honestly. I, I don't see it that much there. They might, I've worked with some other directors who are like that, Sydney Lumet certainly is like that. Um, I had the pleasure of working on his last film. But, um, but there are a lot of people also who, who um, are not that way. So I, I try, I've learned not to bring an expectation from, uh, from the way they were. Um, in terms of when you said theme songs, do you mean like just thematic like melodies and things like that? Um, again, I'd really try to avoid um, taking the way I work with them to other situations. Every film is different. And I've worked with Spike Jones. He is a very different person than Joel and Ethan, also a pleasure to work with, but just completely different, or David O. Russell or any of these people. And I try to like just say, OK, I'm just going to go with that. I don't want to try to force my way of working on them. I'll learn something maybe by doing it their way. So, um, so I really try to not carry uh, that baggage around.
1: Hi. Um, First of all, thank you, it's very interesting. I have a question about Barton Fink. Um, I feel that the sound in that movie, especially in the hotel scenes, is very, very unique. Um, I was wondering if that was something that was mentioned in the script and also how you work together to achieve that um, unique sound.
2: Well, you're right, it is very (laughs) unique. Uh, And I think there was some of that in the script, right?
1: the the discussion
2: of the spaces was
1: uh, scripted, and the implied it actually is written in several places what the sound would be like in those spaces. Um, it was more like a framing for the sound, and the music really it operated independently of that. But you, but there was a similar kind of lonely structure. It's the theme of their movie, I guess. Their movies.
2: I mean we. <coughs> When they had shot it, uh, Joel actually thought maybe they didn't need any music, that they wouldn't be entirely um, sound design. And um, I had an idea in my mind for what music might contribute. They, they were happy with the idea that maybe there wouldn't be any music. But I thought there was an aspect of Barton Fink's character, his childlike naivete that, um, that I could enhance with a, a melody. So I, I proposed that to them, And again, the moment I played it for them, they said, oh, yeah. And then that was it. Um, but that was the first one, I think, where, Spike and, Spike, <laughs> where Skip and I uh, really spotted very carefully together, because there, we really were trading sounds. There'd be times when I had these bass trombones, and, and Skip would have a mosquito. There'd be times when my, <laughs> I'd have a violin, where his mosquito had been. But now the hotel is playing the is creaking and groaning where the bass trombones had been. We really it was orchestrated between us. And actually when the album came out, they put some of Barton Fink on an album with Fargo. Um, I put Skip's work on there too, uh, on the album because I just thought it was so integral to the the score.
1: Yes, you go. I was just going to add to that. It was nice to be able to really work it out because there were a lot of things where we couldn't really provide a deep enough sound effect where we, we felt like we were getting close, but we really needed to sort of hand off. So We said, like, okay, well, this is getting us there for the mosquito, but it doesn't really hammer home. It's kind of empty, really. It's just one mosquito. We have to, what are we going to do? And we did the same thing in some of the other kind of uh, more bizarre scenes where Carter was going along with a fairly open music cue, and we were able to put in splashes of kind of abstract sounds to push the whole thing a little farther.
0: So I, I'm, I'm actually really happy that you asked about, about uh, Barton Fink. Um, we could have easily have done the entire thing just about that one movie. There's so much to talk about. But if you want to know more about it, uh, and actually in researching this, I came across there's a fantastic article written by a guy named Randall Barnes uh, that Randall. was published a couple of years ago on Offscreen. That was his yeah, thesis. Yeah, on the, on, uh, But it's published on offscreen.com. Uh, and it's, an, it's a very lengthy article just about Bart and Fink, and it's, it's just fascinating. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to thank uh, Skip and Carter. They're, they're working together right now, actually, taking a break from this is day two of the final mix on Jason Bateman's movie, which you are both working on. So they've literally, the stage stopped so that they can come down and talk to us today. So I really appreciate you guys coming down. Thanks. And thank you.